Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. It opens pretty much like any country song. Little kid in a small town I did my best just to fit in Three chords and a sentimental small town story laced with pedal steel. But it's a landmark in a genre that likes to lay claim to being the authentic sound of America. Mickey Guyton performed the song live at this year's Grammy Awards. She was the first African-American woman to be nominated in a country music category. America's fraught introspection over race and representation is playing out in the music of the heartland. If you think we live in the land of the free, you should try to be black like me. This is a special musical edition of Checks and Balance. I'm John Prideau, The Economist's US editor. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, politics, polarization, and country music. Country's biggest star is Morgan Wallen. In February, he was caught on camera using a racial slur. While his music was pulled from radio playlists and award shows, his album stayed at number one for most of 2021. The affair seemed to reinforce the stereotype of country music as the realm of hillbilly bigotry. But digital media are revolutionizing country, and its politics have always been more complex than its ubiquity in Republican heartland suggests. What can country music teach us about America's shifting politics of class and identity? With me, as ever, to make sense of class, politics and country music in America are Charlotte Howard, The Economist's New York bureau chief, and John Fasman, the US digital editor. Charlotte, how are you feeling about 2022? Have you got any resolutions? Resolutions for 2022? Well... I don't believe in New Year's resolutions. I probably would say I believe in New Year's aspirations, but my hopes for 2022 are to sleep more and travel more, get on the road and do some reporting. John, how about you? Any New Year's aspirations? Uh, read more, write more, travel more, tweet less. <laughs> so more of the good stuff. More of the good stuff. Decided I don't really need to know what's on everybody's mind all the time. Yeah, somebody recently described Twitter to me as showing off in front of strangers. Yes. And since then, I just haven't been able to spend much time on the platform. My resolution or aspiration, I think, is to 
crack, or maybe not crack, but improve my slide guitar playing, which feels apt for this week's episode. I don't play pedal steel, but I do have a beautiful tricone resonator guitar, and I enjoy playing it. I don't play it enough. So that's my, my plan for 2022. Well, because we're still in holiday mode, this is going to be a slightly different episode of Checks and Balance. I feel like I keep saying that, but we're going to be reverting to the more normal political and public policy stuff soon. This episode is going to be about country music and how some knowledge of country music in America helps you understand class, identity and politics in the country. The disgrace of country music's biggest star was one of the more intriguing stories of 2021. The Morgan Wallen story is not strictly a political one, so we haven't talked about it on the podcast so far this year. But looking back, it's one that echoes a lot of the themes that we do talk about. So we asked Nadine Hubbs, a professor at the University of Michigan who writes about country, she's written a book called Rednecks, Queers and Country Music, to explain it for us. Morgan Wallen is in many ways a perfect example of a contemporary country music star. He has a gorgeous voice. He is very talented. He's male and he's white. And those are the people who get played on country radio. He performs the style of bro and post-bro country. The themes are about partying with your buddies, getting with some pretty girls, driving fast, going out in the country and throwing back some beers. He has ramped up the redneck aspect more and more. We've had many, many artists from Gretchen Wilson. Let me get a big hell yeah from the redneck girls like me. Hell yeah! To David Allen Coe. Cause my long hair just can't cover up my redneck. Many artists who have embraced and reclaimed the pejorative term redneck. Morgan Wallen is just the latest one to do that. For me. He also has a lot of really romantic songs. The love songs that have been around country forever, he does a lot of those and he does them really well and he does them very passionately. One of them is Whiskey Glasses. He is the bad boy who's also a sad boy. I'm gonna need some whiskey glasses Cause I don't wanna see the truth And that is such an irresistible combination when you have a young artist who is good looking, who is authentically Southern with a real accent. He's been in the gym a lot. He's been working out. He's a hunk. He wears the Western shirts with the sleeves cut off, a very redneck look, and hairstyles that match his redneck lyrics. The faux hawk, the neo mullet, and long hair that looks like he could be a rebel soldier. At the start of 2021, Morgan Wallen was at the top of the country charts when this controversy erupted. What's up, guys? It's Morgan. It's a tough video for me to make. Um, It followed controversies that had already happened. He had flouted COVID regulations 
Video had surfaced showing him at a bar in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, where University of Alabama and their famous football team live, partying, maskless, and kissing lots of random women. And he posted an emotional, tearful apology on Instagram to his fans, apologizing for letting everyone down. My actions this past weekend were pretty short-sighted and they have obviously affected my long-term goals and my dreams. Four months later, he was drunk again in a parking lot, hanging with some friends and just shouting into the air. He used the N-word. What's familiar is he got drunk and he had to apologize for what he did while he was drunk. Our actions matter, our words matter. And I just want to encourage anyone watching to please learn from my mistake. There's no reason to downplay what I did. It matters. And please know I'm carefully choosing my next steps in repair. What is unfamiliar is that he was caught using a racist slur. He got himself, therefore, into political trouble. A drunk Morgan Wallen in a parking lot in Nashville late at night shouting out incoherent babble that includes the N-word is especially at this moment in history, giving the country industry a black eye. The industry and institutions immediately responded this time. So that's something that's new. He was getting canceled. And the way that it played out was he got a lot of bad press for a while, and then his sales and his streams spiked. So one doesn't see him being canceled by the industry anymore. A rehabilitation is well underway. He's going out on an eight-month tour. It's going to sell out. He was the number one country artist before he yelled out the N-word, and he is way up at the top of country now. For outsiders, that probably confirms their notions of what country music is all about. We really have to separate the music industry from the country audience and even country artists. We have a terrible habit of making few distinctions when it comes to our stereotypes and criticisms of the white working class. The white working class are scapegoated for many ugly things that go on in American society, many forms of bigotry, which really are shared across all class boundaries. It's very convenient to pin racism, white supremacy, sexism, homophobia, transphobia on a single relatively powerless sector in American society. Country music is the audible symbol of that class and the reason that when you ask probably the majority of Americans under, say, 50, if you ask them what kind of music do you listen to, they'll say anything but country. Charlotte, Morgan Wallen, I think, is a more sympathetic figure than Donald Trump. But nevertheless, there are echoes of the Trump story in what happened to him this year. I mean, he first became famous on reality TV. He was on The Voice, sort of Trumpy echoes there. And then this transgression, saying a word that I think all three of us would agree is beyond the pale. 
dropped by lots of the radio stations, you know, kind of censured by the industry, which led to even greater popularity, it seems. Um, and that's kind of Trump-like also, isn't it? I mean, the sort of breaking of a taboo leading to greater popularity. What do you make of all of this? Yeah, I'm not sure how sympathetic I find him. But I think there is something that's interesting in the response to him, which is that you see a huge swell of support for him. And I think one thing that has become apparent is that, as we just heard, there's a temptation sometimes to think about racism as something that's confined to those people and those people being uneducated, uneducated white people from certain parts of the country. And I think the popularity both of Donald Trump and of somebody like Morgan Wallen, frankly, points to a broader support that may be less visible than just one group of people in one particular American backwater. To me, maybe the Trumpiest aspect of the Morgan Wallen story is that he found a benefit in sort of what we can think of as aesthetic polarization, right? He has reclaimed the redneck label. After he used the racial slur, he saw his sales rise, right? I'm sure he and his fans would not call themselves racist, but maybe they would say that they are sort of anti-anti-racist, that we can't cancel people for what they said. And all of those aspects, to me, seem culturally quite Trumpy. Do you guys both agree that there's a kind of snobbery towards country music in America, certainly on the part of well-educated Americans? I don't think there's a snobbery about country music broadly. I think it depends on the country artist. But I do think country music is fascinating. It's an industry that at its founding was explicitly racialized. Record executives created two categories. There was hillbilly or country music for white people and what they called, quote unquote, race records for a black audience. So it's a genre of music that's deeply connected to segregation in America's past. Um, But it's also an art form that throughout its history has taken working class problems seriously. You think of Dolly Parton or Johnny Cash. Um, Johnny Paycheck had a song called Take This Job and Shove It. These are artists, and this is a genre that talks a lot about ordinary problems of ordinary people. And I think that has really resonated in particular with working class white people. And there's a risk in, in dismissing it. I think that point about mobility in America is really interesting. I mean, the American ethos that we're all meant to buy into is that you move around the country in pursuit of opportunity, right? And one of Morgan Wallen's better songs is called More Than My Hometown. And it's about this relationship that he's in uh, with a woman and she wants to move somewhere else. And he sings about how much he loves her. And there's some great lines in the song, he, he sings about loving her more than that feeling when the bass hits the hook, when the guy gets the girl at the end of the book, etc. But he can't love her more than his hometown, and so he's going to stick around. And I think that's an important element of, of country music, right? And also, I think, you know, without making too much of a stretch, um, politically, the appeal of uh, Donald Trump, the Republican Party in rural America, uh, is partly based around that sort of emotional idea that, you know, the place where you live is absolutely great and there's no greater place and there's no way you should be moving to the suburbs or the city in in pursuit of opportunity because, you know, your hometown is where it's at. And it's a reaction against, you know, coastal elitists like us who find it very easy to say, you know, if there are no economic prospects in your hometown, just leave. It's not that easy for a lot of people to just leave their hometown. There's a sense of rootedness 
And that, I think, is one of the great sort of aspects of country music, which really is a great American art form. Okay, we'll find out which president brought outlaw country to the White House in a moment. First, though, a reminder, the only New Year's resolution worth keeping is to subscribe to The Economist, if you don't already. You'll find the best offer at economist.com slash uspod. I'm still thumbing through the excellent bumper holiday issue, which has essays on all sorts of interesting things that wouldn't be in The Economist normally. But this week, we'll have a briefing on the Republican Party, and if you got a console for Christmas, or if you gave one to one of your children, you'll want to read our piece passing the latest research on the addictiveness of video games. Economist.com slash USPod is the link to subscribe. It's in the notes for this episode. Ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States and Mrs. Nixon. It's the 17th of March, 1973 a week before the Watergate cover-up starts to unwind, and a year before Richard Nixon would be forced to quit. This is St. Patrick's Day, as you know. With a bright green bow tie and trademark toothy grin, the president welcomes an audience of DC dignitaries to the East Room of the White House. Being St. Patrick's Day, of course, uh, we have a number of choices insofar as the music is concerned, but we think St. Patrick would have really appreciated our bringing American music to this American... This was not your usual presentation for Beltway Sophisticates. There's only one thing stronger than country moonshine, that's country music. We'll now find out. With the giant stars and stripes unfurled on the wall behind him, outlaw country superstar Merle Haggard launched into his number one song, The Oki from Muskogee. We don't smoke marijuana in Muskogee. We don't take our trips on LSD. We don't burn our draft cards down on Main Street. Cause we like living right, being free. Haggard wore a pearl button shirt, waistcoat, and white hat, the full cowboy rig. The audience stayed seated in their ball gowns and tuxedos, but lapped up his lyrics. And I'm proud to be a donkey from Muskogee A place where even squares can have fall A former labourer and convicted robber who served time in St Quentin prison, Haggard had become a hero to national conservatives for his humorous hit lacerating the anti-war left. As his singing career took off, California Governor Ronald Reagan gave him a pardon. Haggard called it the greatest evening of his life. For Nixon, it was the culmination of a calibrated strategy to embrace country music. In the 1968 election, Richard Nixon was the frontrunner. President Lyndon Johnson had withdrawn from the campaign. But with America split over Johnson's legacy of civil rights reform, Nixon faced a populist challenge from the right. Conservative Southerners rallied behind Alabama Governor George Wallace, who mounted a third-party challenge to defend racial segregation. Wallace had close connections to country music. He married a country singer, and his son, George Wallace Jr., also had a record deal. The cars in the lot outside Nashville's famous Ryman Auditorium bore bumper stickers that read, Bluegrass is white folks' music. Vote for Wallace. 
Nixon's strategy was to target Southern Conservatives. His aides lured country stars like Buck Owens and Ernest Tubb, who had backed Wallace, to record campaign ads. In the late 60s and 70s, radio and TV were helping country music to break out of the Nashville honky-tonks to become a national media industry. It spread through the rapidly growing Sunbelt suburbs alongside Nixon's national conservatism. Suburbanisation also meant the dilapidation of city centre music venues. Political rallies offered a new way for country artists to connect with live audiences. You remember on that prisoners of, prisoners of war affair... That day, In March 1974, his presidency teetering after the indictment of the Watergate 7, Nixon made a last appeal to the country through country music. About the original score of the great song that he wrote that everybody sings since then. Yes, I remember. God bless America. Yes, I remember. And I thought possibly we'd try that. Oh, do. That'd be great. God bless America. The Grand Ole Opry, a weekly live music show that first popularised country music, had also suburbanised, moving to new premises on the outskirts of Nashville. Nixon attended the gala opening. He was the first president ever to visit the Opry. The band played a country-tinged version of Hail to the Chief. George Wallace sat in the front row. John, I remember being at the Republican National Convention in Cleveland in 2016, the one that nominated Donald Trump, and Chris Jansen played on stage. He was a big country music star and was particularly big then. And one of his most popular songs was called White Trash. And it's about this idea that, you know, they, those urban coastal elites, look on us as as white trash. And he has a line in the song where he says, well, if they had their way, they'd have thrown us away. And there was seemed to be a pretty clear link between that idea of what coastal elites think of us and the sort of Trump idea of how coastal elites are a threat to America and they're snobbish and they don't understand real America, etc., etc. But this association between country music and the Republican Party goes back way before Donald Trump. It does. Although I can't help thinking, you know, listening to Merle Haggard sing and knowing a little something about him and his life, that there was just maybe a little bit of a wink in Oki from Muskogee. I mean, Haggard is a much more complex figure than listening to that song at face value would make you think. He wrote a beautiful song called Irma Jackson about his great love who is an African-American woman and how society would never recognize their love because he was white and she was black. He wrote a song for Hillary Clinton. Before Oki from Muskogee, he was almost a sort of Bob Dylan-like figure. The song Oki from Muskogee to me sounds almost like a satire that people mistakenly took at face value. Or like a character, right? Or like he was playing a character, and that wasn't really him. I would finally note that before he died, he helped develop a strain of recreational marijuana called Merle's Girls. So they may not have smoked marijuana in Muskogee, but he certainly seemed to have liked it. I think that's such a good point, John. There is something about country music and also about politicians' embrace of country music that feels performative. I mean, country music itself, a big part of it is obviously about storytelling, about the instruments used, etc. But it's also identity. And it's about sometimes a performative identity. So they're people who are no longer living in a rural area, but talking about 
rural town in a kind of nostalgic way um, about an ideal of something that's not quite there anymore or about what it means to be really American. And the idea of Nixon embracing country music seems to be very much in keeping with that. And even someone like Ted Cruz, he has said that since 2001, it was really after 9-11 that he turned to country music. And he said, quote, I had an emotional reaction that said, these are my people, unquote. So there's this kind of turn in a performative way, I think, towards uh, something that feels very distinctly and proudly American and nostalgic. That is just a, a very much a part of country music and politics relationship with it. Yeah, Charlotte, I think you're right about that. I think nostalgia is a really important part of the appeal of country music. And that goes some way towards explaining why it fits together with conservative politics, which has you know, obviously a nostalgic strain, an idea that the past was better than the present. But John, as you explained with your Merle Haggard example, writing a song for Hillary Clinton, for Hillary Clinton. There have also been plenty of country music stars who've lent politically in a different direction. I mean, I remember the Texas Republican Party freaking out when Willie Nelson appeared on stage with Beto O'Rourke when he was running for the Senate in Texas. And I suppose one of the most famous political spats in country music history, or recent history at least, involved the Dixie Chicks, as they were called at the time, and their opposition to the Iraq War. Yeah, that was the ultimate cancelling, right? It was when Natalie Maines, who's the lead singer of the Dixie Chick, said in a concert that they were ashamed that the president of the United States is from Texas, referring to George W. Bush, because she was uh, wary of the invasion of Iraq. They were banned from country radio. Angry fans destroyed their CDs. There was this really big response to that comment. So canceling an artist is not something that just happens when the left is angry about someone saying something controversial on the right. It certainly happens in the other direction. Well, the Dixie Chicks famously ditched the Dixie part of their name in order to distance themselves from those associations of the antebellum South and slavery. We'll be back in a moment to talk a bit more about how streaming is changing the politics of country music. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Country music has changed a lot since Nixon's time, not least because of the digital revolution that has transformed every corner of media in the past decade. Let's hear from Nadine Hubbs again to get her view on what's going on in the industry and how that's shifting the politics of country. You'll hear her mention the CMAs, that's the acronym for the Country Music Awards. Black and brown artists and audiences are growing in an unprecedented way. There's an explosion of particularly black artists in country music and black audiences saying, yeah, I listen to country music. Because of changes that have happened, starting with the huge hit Old Town Road. I got the horses in the back, horse stock is attached. At the top of multiple charts for five whole months in 2019. 
The artist Lil Nas X coming out as gay a few months into that. There's been a lot going on in just the past three-ish years. Mickey Guyton especially. Finally, a female African-American artist who's getting a lot of attention was just on the CMA Awards a month ago. You should try to be Things are happening really fast in country music. It's an amazing time to be someone who studies and writes about country music because you see a kind of social revolution going on. Black audiences had kept country at arm's length and that really changed as more and more, through social media especially, the word got out about the history of country music and how really black musicians had been very much a part of that music until the recording industry was born in the 1920s under Jim Crow and it segregated the music of working class Southerners into what was called race records and became R&B and what was called old-time music, later hillbilly music, and now we call country music. That story, it was known mostly among scholars and country music experts, but the social media influence got that story around, and now, more and more, there are not just African-American artists, but African-American listeners who are willing to say, yeah, that's my music. That's my music, too. We've also had a kind of a revolution in music delivery technologies. Country radio is not a primary form of music delivery for a lot of listeners today. The Channels for music delivery now are through online streaming. What that does is introduces new listeners to genres that would have had a firewall. We have these notions that there's a white sound and there's a black sound. Those things have been produced, constructed, elaborated for 100 years now. And now we see them being undone. One of the key features of country music is that it, it doesn't tend to have political anthems. She thinks life is fair and God hears every prayer and everyone gets there ever after. What you'll find in country songs is personal storytelling about individual lives, ordinary lives. So when you have a country song that's making a point that could be seen as a political point. If that's a successful country song, invariably, it's gonna be a song about people's individual ordinary lives. Mickey Guyton pulled that off last year with What Are You Gonna Tell Her? Do you just let her pretend that she could be the president? Would it help us get there any faster? It's a song about how racism and homophobia and sexism 
keep people down in American society. But you're not going to find anything like that in the lyrics. It's a song about what are you going to tell your little girl who thinks the sky's the limit? You're teaching her she can do anything she wants to do in this world. But what are you going to tell her about the realities of social inequities? She knocked it out of the park because it was a statement song, but it was in the country tradition. What are you going to tell her when she figures out that all this time you build her up just so the world could let her down? Yeah, what are you telling her? Another one like that would be Jimmy Allen's song from a few years ago, All Tractors Ain't Green. I learned back when I was young You can probably guess from the title what kind of statement that song is making. It is, again, a song that shows that he's singing in the genre. He is a black artist who's singing about difference and inclusion, but he's doing it in the country way. We also have LGBTQ artists and audiences embracing country and producing country music and getting more visibility. Orville Peck really interesting artist, the the masked man with his sort of queer retro style. My mama told me when I was young, we are all born superstars. Both audible and, and visible. I'm beautiful in my way, cause God makes no mistakes. I'm on the right track, baby, I was born this way. Don't hide yourself in regret. Just love yourself and you're set I'm on the right track Baby, I was born this way Brandy Clark, the great Nashville songwriter, came out several years ago. Brandy Carlisle, who had always been thought of more as an Americana artist, is kind of crossing over into country more, especially with the all-female supergroup called The High Women. Old time living on a half-time schedule Always trying to make everybody feel special. They're trying to intervene, too, into this exclusion of women on country radio. Redesigning women, running the world while we're cleaning up the kitchen. Making bangs, shaking hands, driving 80, trying to get home just to feed the baby. Of course, social media especially has unleashed hideous public discourse of hate, hate comments. And Mickey Guyton says she witnesses them on a daily basis toward her, and it's heartbreaking to see that. Certainly, there are racists among country fans, but what I would encourage outsiders particularly to keep in mind is that there is no sector of American society free of racism. It is not unique to country music. But country music is a place right now, in this moment, where you might get the most interesting view of how the culture wars are at play right now. 
it is a really interesting place to keep an eye on and an ear on right now. Charlotte, I opened my music streaming app the other day and I looked at the most played songs, hoping to find that it was a Bach cello suite or something like that, and actually discovering that Beyoncé's Daddy Lessons was right up there. That's a sort of crossover song that wouldn't have existed at the time when radio stations were segregated and the music industry segregated artists uh, in the way that it did. And streaming is undoing all of that to some extent. I mean, all three of us are of an age where we tend to complain about the terrible effects that new technology is having on modern life. We're getting sort of old and curmudgeonly. But this is one area where the opposite seems to be true, right? You're getting lots of cross-style fertilisation. I mean, even Morgan Wallen, who we began with, is collaborating with some producers who've worked with uh, hip-hop stars. You're getting more African-American country music stars than, than used to exist. This is all good, right? Yeah, I think it is a good thing. I mean, if you look at the role of country radio stations as a gatekeeper, I don't think they're really the ones you want to be the kingmakers in in, in any industry. The data around the number of country songs by Black women or even women at all, as you heard Nadine speak about, is is really, really low. There was a study that looked at radio stations around the U.S. and found the number of male singers outnumber those of songs by women almost 10 to 1. That's pretty remarkable. And you have different, you know, someone like Mickey Guyton isn't played. I would noted reading about about her that after she performed at the Grammys, her record label began marketing her songs more to AC radio rather than to country because country music stations just weren't playing her. And I had to look up what AC meant, which is adult contemporary, like an easy listening type station. But even the mechanics of the record label marketing her to one type of style of radio versus another type of style just seems so outdated in 2021, 2022, um, that that, that her rise in streaming is really notable. If you think of somebody like a Casey Musgraves, who again, is not in the traditional country mold precisely, but it's not like she's so far out of it. I mean, she has a song where she vaguely talks about um, you know, same-sex relationships and smoking pot. Um, it's not like it's so transgressive. She's someone who really has come up outside of country music stations and is um, has a lot of success on streaming services. And I'll note, even back to the Dixie Chicks, who at the time were still called the Dixie Chicks, their song, Not Ready to Make Nice, which came out in 2006 and was about that controversy with George W. Bush, it wasn't pretty popular and it wasn't really played on radio stations, particularly not country radio stations, but it was able to rank on the Billboard Hot 100 because of downloads, not radio play. Yeah, I think people respond to good music, right? Less to themes. And I I, I wonder if that marketing of, of Mickey Guyton to adult contemporary stations isn't done out of an excess of caution. If her labels and marketers aren't underestimating people, I think people will, will gravitate to good songs and good music. You have a history of country artists taking on what could crudely be stereotyped as liberal concerns, right? Whether it's Johnny Cash singing about prisoners and Native Americans, Loretta Lynn singing about birth control. These songs did well, I suspect, even among people who may not have agreed with those stances read as strict politics. 
country music is music. It's not a statement of beliefs that must be interpreted strictly as the words dictate. It's music. It's music, and people respond to music. I don't know. I I think yes and no to that. Um, if you if you look at the the relationship with the Dixie Chicks at the time, now called the Chicks, at the time they were really popular, right? And then all of a sudden, people weren't listening to them because um, they didn't agree with the message. I, I'll go back to what Nadine said about Mickey Guyton, though. I think it is worth noting the Charlie Pride example is important, um, but it also is really important that his identity was kept hidden. I mean, there's a long history of white people accepting Black performers, whether they're Black athletes or Black singers, as long as all they're doing is singing or playing the sport. Mickey Guyton has a song that's called Black Like Me. It's about the experience of being Black. And so it's not that's perhaps it's not that surprising, though it is disheartening that she wasn't embraced by um, those in the country music establishment. Colin Kaepernick, a black athlete, was doing perfectly fine with with white football fans and still until he started really being vocal about what it is to be black and about the black experience and protesting against police violence. So I think it's important to make a distinction in the embrace of black performers, black artists, black athletes, um, when they're just generally entertaining versus when they are talking about actually who they are and what it feels like to be who they are. And so in that respect, I think there's a long way to go. Charlotte, I think you make a really good point there. I would also add that if you look at Little Nas X and Old Town Road, that earworm that was right at the top of the Billboard charts for a very long time, the gatekeepers of country music weren't keen on that song, right? Wouldn't play it. But because of streaming, it didn't actually matter. That was a case where you had an artist who wasn't trying to do anything remotely controversial or political. Uh, It's just a great tune. And the country stations weren't interested and ultimately it didn't matter in a way that if you rewind, you know, 10, 20 years ago, it really would have. I kind of question. So I, I agree with you that that song is not explicitly political in that it's not talking about civil rights explicitly. But I think that there are some acts in American culture that just by doing them are political. When you have a young black man who's taking on the culture of a a young black gay man taking on the culture of something that has traditionally been a very heterosexual white art form, that is political, right? So I think it's worth noting that. But also, I completely agree with you that you have this decentralization of power more broadly that's happening within the music industry that can give rise and support both to someone like Lil Nas X as well as someone like Morgan Wallen. I think that's a great place to end. But before we go to the quiz, can I ask you both for a country or country-ish music recommendation? Charlotte, by the sounds of things, you're a, you remain a Dixie Chicks fan. Not Ready to Make Nice is a great song, so you could go with that. That would be acceptable. But would there be something else that you'd pick? I have to say, I love that mashup that the Chicks did with Beyonce. It is so good. And Natalie Maines and Beyonce have to be two of the best female vocalists of our time. So I highly recommend that. What about you, John? I suppose my single favorite country song is Merle Haggard's divorce song, A Place to Fall Apart, which is very hard to listen to without crying. If we're going country-ish, I would add Taylor Swift's song Mean, which is a favorite of James Astle, <laughs> our Lexington columnist. It's a favorite of my son's, too. This is a great the song. The idea of James Astle listening to Taylor Swift really made my day. Yeah. 
Here's something else that's going to make your day, Charlotte. It's quiz time. The first mention of country music in The Economist came in May 1970 in a piece on the franchising frenzy. Country star Minnie Pearl had been recruited to front a Nashville fast food chain. What southern delicacy did Minnie Pearls serve? Fried chicken? I'll say um, something okra related. But it's probably fried chicken. Was that it? You're something okra related. <laughs> it's such a bad answer. That can't possibly be your suggested answer. Um, I'll go for no, no. How about grits? Grits is good. I'm afraid it's not right. It was indeed fried chicken. So that's a point for Mr. Fasman. Minnie Pearls was supposed to be Tennessee's answer to Kentucky Fried Chicken, Pepsi to KFC's Coke, but thanks to the accounting snafus reported in The Economist, it went belly up. The business was the brainchild of John J. Hooker, prominent Nashville lawyer and advisor to Bobby Kennedy. It wasn't his only foray into fried fowl, though. Which gospel singer also fronted a chicken chain, the first African-American-owned franchise in the South? I think that was Mahalia Jackson. Sure, sounds good. I have no idea. It was indeed Mahalia Jackson. Well done. So two points to Fasman. Mahalia Jackson fried chicken has been described as a culinary camelot for black America. The first branch opened in Memphis in 1968, right after the assassination of Martin Luther King. While Jackson's restaurant chain was short-lived, Dr. King said her voice was a once in a millennium. Her rendition of Oh Holy Night is second only to the Checks and Balance theme tune for spine-tingling transcendence. (laughs) I like it. Well, that's it for this episode. Thank you, Charlotte. Thank you, John. Thanks, John. Thank you. Thanks also to John Shields and to Nicolas Rofast for producing this episode. If you want to get in touch, our email is podcasts at economist.com. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. A very happy new year to all our listeners. We'll have plenty more checks and balance in 2022. big money when you start your next project today at menards check out our great selection of garage and utility lighting options in stock ready to take home today we carry everything to help you illuminate whatever project you're working on shop garage and utility lighting products in store at your nearest menards you can also view all of our entire selection of lighting options today on menards.com save big money at